0: Glad to have you back. We are here for, this will be episode number 40. So it's kind of a, uh, at least a a small milestone for the GJ beat and really enjoy doing this. We are, uh, I don't know, a few weeks in between doing each nowadays because life is kind of taking over. But if you've got a good suggestion of someone that um, would be a good fit, certainly send them my way. Send me a message. Let me know. We are just off of uh, two big weekends in a row. We had the Blue Ridge Marathon. And there, there there are way too many names to mention in all of this, but we've had a lot of folks who did pretty amazing and some had some, you know, uh, circumstances that weren't in their favor. And we had a lot of folks who did, you know, both races, Blue Ridge and promised land and finished both. And, uh, it's quite a story. Um uh, a lot of the guests that we've had on the podcast, Seth Thomas had finished, the double marathon and rolled himself right into Promised Land to finish that too in a very respectable pace uh on both. So it's kind of a big deal. Uh I want to give a special shout out to Marty Wynn. Marty, if you've not read his recent race report on Promised Land, he was a recent guest and he pretty much had based his last few months on that race. And it was a struggle of a day for everybody, including him, because the heat was tremendous. And uh, he, on his page, gave a report of his day. He did make it to 30 miles. Didn't make it to the finish line, but I've never seen anybody that put so much heart and soul and detail into the thought of finishing that race. It's special to everybody that was there. A lot of you were were there that associate with us, and a lot of the folks that have been on the podcast were in the race, and it, it's a super special day. And I, I look at someone like Marty, and I think, you know, even though he didn't make it, how special is it for him to have had that experience and to get as far as he did, and to feel that struggle that everyone who's run an ultra has ever felt. I mean there are times that, you know, most of us who've run an ultra could not go another step, but you still did. And that's what he did. And uh he, he gives a pretty good it's pretty long. So uh I think you'll uh enjoy reading and get a lot of detail and just how just how special that day was for him. But great guy. Just want to give him a shout out. So let's move on. Today uh, we are going to talk to Jeff Bachrod. Now you may or may not know him. He doesn't necessarily run in all the Roanoke local circles that you may see. You've probably seen him out in public. Uh, I met Jeff on a bike ride. I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago. I'm not sure. And as soon as I met him, I'm like, that guy's pretty interesting. And, uh, as I mean, I never run into him. But lately we've crossed paths a couple times and I've seen his, uh, Facebook posts about world travel and the things that he had, that he has done. It's just, uh, very interesting. He is an athlete. We've met on bikes the first time I don't cross paths with him, you know, on trail or on bikes nowadays, but he is quite a tremendous athlete. That's not exactly where this podcast goes. This podcast kind of goes down, uh, Uh, the line of he will start in the direction of talking about his career. He is a patent attorney and I can guarantee you don't know many patent attorneys, but I don't. And, you know, and now I only know one. So, uh, with his career, he's been able to do a lot of world travel, but within that world travel, he's been able to branch out on his own and, uh, it's quite an experience to hear uh, the knowledge that he has talking about his career and talking about his travels. And uh, uh, it's just one of those interesting people that um, we kind of venture out a little bit into areas that are not necessarily associated with, with trail running and all that. And I think you're going to like it. He, if if you don't know him, uh, meet him, but, get get into this one and go a little bit deeper than just the first little bit before you uh, decide what you think because he has a lot to say he's so interesting Uh, I'm glad to call him my new friend he lives kind of in a local spot now that I get to see him a little bit more regularly and uh, just a just a great guy so let's do this episode number 40 with Jeff Baccarat No Posting online all day about that 420. I don't know what that is. Kind of strange. Right now, it is a little bit of yeah
1: things these days. I don't know much about math.
0: That's
1: my <laughs> thing. So anyway, talk about something that got started. And when did that get started? Because I mean, really, people
0: have been saying that for as long as I've ever known. There, there's a history. I, I read the history today, and there was it's. I'm thinking it was in California, and there's like three or four dudes at a school who knew exactly at four twenty that people weren't gonna be over next to the uh to the concrete wall and that they met over there every day and they eventually got nicknames and and it went on and on, and I think it just stayed that way,
1: huh I always <laughs> thought it had to do with four twenty in the morning and people were gonna wake up at that hour and do the thing, but um I thought that's also very counter to the thing <laughs> to get up that early.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I read some history about it. Not my thing, but you know, uh, it was pretty amazing how, uh, comfortable, you know, the posts are about it online these days in modern times. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. It's not a big deal anymore, I suppose.
0: So Jeff Vokrad, is that how I pronounce it? That's correct. Okay. Cause I, I, have, uh, purposefully not said your last name in front of you for this long because I didn't know if I could pronounce it right. But you nailed it. It kind of uh, sounds like it's spelled.
1: That's exactly it. Yep.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking that a lot of folks, that a lot of the regulars are going to be wondering, who is Jeff Bachrod? Mm-hmm. And uh, as always, they'll, they'll know that I picked you for a reason. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you and I met through, I think we were riding bikes one night. And I was like, who's this guy? And then you started telling me, and we kind of we kind of talked, but then we didn't talk for a long time. And, but I, I knew by the stuff that you told me that night, I was like, I'd like to run into that guy again. And, and then we did. And now here we are. So I'm glad to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Have some bells. Get ready. Right. It's going to get good. So I guess, I guess we'll tee it up here. Jeff, you're, uh, you're a patent attorney, which in my brain interested me a lot because um, that is something that I'm friends with a lot of attorneys, don't know a single patent attorney. And uh, I do talk to a lot of attorneys on a daily basis and, and you were different. And uh, then I saw all your world travels, things like that. That's what got me interested in you. So, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, a niche market like you're in, and something that, Requires you to do a lot of different things is is definitely worthy of a conversation. I know you're an athlete everybody thinks that that we have all athletes but uh, You're an athlete too. Uh, I don't have no idea The depth of that with you, but we'll get to that. So anyway, where where, where are you from?
1: Originally, uh, San Diego uh, But I spent a lot of time growing up in Yuma, Arizona Which is on the border of Mexico and California and Arizona right there in the corner so It's a real small town in some ways, um, especially in the summertime. And it kind of swells in the wintertime with what we call winter visitors or snowbirds from Canada uh, who like to go down there for the the warm weather and the uh, inexpensive lifestyle, I would say. So I grew up there. That was where I went to high school. And, um, you know, it had some actually interesting aspects to it. It's like the sand dunes are there you know the sand dunes are where they filmed uh, uh return of the jedi for instance and so we used to run all up and down the sand dunes in our trucks and uh you know go out there on the weekends with beer and bonfires and and quads and all kinds of stuff like that and then we also had the Colorado River flowing through there so we did a lot of jet skiing as well so it was kind of an interesting place uh but for me I kind of realized okay what am I going to do here? And there wasn't much that I really thought that I would do uh, staying there. And so I, I, I kind of concluded toward the end of high school. I was like, I need to get into a different city. I want to try bigger cities, do something like that. And that led me to, um, I was doing chemistry and was doing pretty well in chemistry. And I ended up going into chemical engineering. That's the University of Arizona. Um, that's where I got my undergrad degree. And um, that pretty much put me on the path to be able to live where I wanted to live, decide what I wanted to do, which is a great thing. Um, but even there, it was kind of interesting because as I was looking at the sort of employment opportunities that were coming my way with my chemical engineering degree, they were the kinds of things that I didn't really necessarily want to do. They were also kind of spread in sort of rural areas a lot of times with the chemical plants. I think one was in Lawrence, Kansas um, the other somewhere in the middle of the desert out in California there was discussions of oil rigs in the uh, in the Gulf and a lot of that didn't really appeal to me after I went there and saw some of that and uh, I had a lawn engineering uh, class that I took and I didn't really think much when I signed up for that class, um, but we went into the section on top on the topic of patents, and uh, I got pretty interested in the concept because um, I thought it was interesting that you could go and look up this document that talks about the patent for an invention and link that back to some important invention. And that really inspired me. I remember going to the library and looking at the patents that were there uh, and documents about that and books about it. And, um, an opportunity presented itself to go work at the U S patent trademark office. So when I graduated chemical engineering, I went there and, uh, I had no idea I would go to law school until after I got interested in patents. And really, if you want to do patents, I think you can make a career out of it. You want to get a law degree and, uh, that set me on the path to to going to law school. So we're talking 1999 uh, is when I started this whole adventure and graduated in, from law school at George Washington University in D.C. in 2005. So it checked the box for me in a lot of ways because I was in the big city. As far as I was concerned, D.C. <laughs> DC is a big city, and it is a big city. And um, it also presented opportunities for me later to travel in ways that I never was able to do that growing up and things. I, uh, first time I was East of Texas was when I went out to the patent office job. So it's a great, it was a great opportunity in a lot of ways for me to expand my horizons and law school was great. I had, a I took a class, uh, in France, actually, a summer class in France, and uh, Justice Scalia was teaching it. So that was really cool to actually have met him and to have two weeks of constitutional law discussions with uh, a Supreme Court justice. And um, I look back on it, and I have a picture with him. It's kind of um, actually with my first wife and him, because she was in law school too. So Um, we were all together in Nice, France, and... It's just a really interesting thing today to look back on that photo.
0: Was he a Supreme Court justice then?
1: Yeah, he was. Uh, It was 2003. So, yeah, he was right in the swing of it. Um, And he was an interesting person, I thought. Um, We studied something of an esoteric area of constitutional law. Esoteric in the sense that it's not part of... Any of the political, you know, discussion of the court, or at least not for the mainstream, Um, had to do with appointment and removal power. It's actually a pretty important thing in terms of the president's ability to hire and fire people and, you know, how far can they go? And it's interesting history there. And actually, it turned out that Scalia was pretty influential in that particular facet of constitutional law in terms of we looked at his it was an interesting way he taught it, but he had us reading his earlier dissenting opinions, which ended up being majority opinions on that particular area and um, uh, it's an interesting one. it comes up, but it's really i I would say for the majority of people would be really in the weeds um, but for me, it was actually quite relevant because there was a dispute about that at the US Patent Trademark Office, and it was a case uh, that ended up going to the Supreme Court more recently to now. Uh, that involved that subject, but the whole thing was brewing at that time, 2003. And that's the an interesting thing when you see it law. A lot of these topics, anything that's going to go to the Supreme Court, often can take you know, 10, 15, 20 years to get to the court in a case that is a good one for them to decide it on. And, um, a lot of factors have to go into that. So it was really cool to have that experience. And that was my first time ever in France. So that was also an interesting time to be in France too, because it was like, we were in the United States at that time, taking French wine and dumping it in the gutter. And we were talking about freedom fries instead of French fries. <laughs> Cause that was 2003. Right before we invaded Iraq. And that was, uh, the French were really opposed to that. And so I I got a lot of uh, sort of, I remember getting into a cab in Paris. And the cab driver says, ah, Americans, Americans, land of Bush. (laughs) But um, there was a lot of sort of antagonism. You know, I remember, and I think it was an Onion article at the time, it said George W. Bush orders France to start speaking English. <laughs> but um, on a real level, uh, I remember one particular experience on that particular trip where I was going in, I had discovered rosé wine, which wasn't as popular as it is now in the United States. Like it, At the time in the United States, you had white Infantel, which was sort of a correction of a mistake that happened in california a while ago but some people liked it but it wasn't really rosé but in the south of france they actually have that's all they have in nice i I wouldn't say all they have but the majority of wines in a wine store in nice are actually rosés and it's quite striking when you walk in there they're almost like an orangish color and there were just quite like many different varieties of it and the reason i one of the reasons is is that I guess it grows really well there. But you see people on the beach, you know, with their sort of um, bucket of ice and the bottle of wine right in the ice, and they're usually eating some kind of shrimp or something like that. And uh, it's a it was just a different vibe than what I was used to. So I wanted to bring back a whole bunch of that. So I basically emptied my suitcase of the clothes that I was going to bring back and substitute it with wine but i went into this wine store and the owners were really nice to me in fact they didn't speak much english uh, but they um they invited me into the back of their store and they showed me a stack of magazines and it was a little bit odd but you know this is 2003 they had all these magazines that were of 9-11 and it was sort of like a a moment of solidarity, and then they they told me about how when they were children, they would go on vacation in Normandy, and there's a bunch of American servicemen buried there in Normandy at the graveyard, and so they were talking about that and um, trying to convey to me that even though there's a lot of tensions and stuff, U.S. and French are you know good friends over the long term. So that was. That was a pretty cool part of that trip.
0: Makes sense. I must have been shielded for most of my life, uh, you know, w- without much of the internet and uh, not turning on the TV that much. I was around the age of thirty when you're talking about this this uh, freedom fraud movement. I have no clue as to any part of what that meant. I've heard of people sometimes say things about France, but I never really understood. And I think just being shielded from that—that's uh, the way to go i wish i could be shielded again (laughs) you think that's possible
1: yeah i don't know at this point no (laughs) if you have uh, any access to uh you know the it's it was funny because i don't know maybe i i paid attention to a lot of that stuff i've always paid attention to politics so things like that have always stood out to me and you know maybe a lot of people especially at that time were not always looking at every aspect of that but it was uh i i found it relevant because i was there in france and kind of feeling the pushback and uh but you know it was you know it was my first time in europe and it really set the tone for what i did over the coming up until covid really um i had another opportunity to go to europe um shortly after i started my first job as a lawyer and It was because I was working on a case that involved um, it was an orthopedic implant case so like hip implants and it had to do with the polymer that's used as the liner for those hip implants the case involved a patent that dealt with the sterilization of that liner it was essentially like a patent that said, put it into a oxygen barrier bag, and fill it with an inert gas, and then irradiate it with cobalt sixty irradiation, and then after all that, heat it um, also in an inert environment at elevated temperature in order to it's called quench the free radicals that were created by the irradiation, but the idea is that they the, the thing was irradiated to kill any germs or whatever that would be in there, and then it was heat-treated in order to remove any of the problems with the irradiation, and that was a patent that was filed, I believe, in 1994, and what they had done was a common technique is over time they had kept filing continuations of that patent and they broadened the claims out to basically say just those steps of irradiation followed by heat treatment in an inert environment. And what had happened in the industry is that that method of sterilization was not really used, but there was another change where they actually started irradiating the basic material to strengthen it. And they did that with every single hip implant or I would say most most of the hip implants, like 90-some percent in the entire industry, were done that way. And the patent claims were broadened out to allegedly cover what everybody was doing, and it was like a billion-dollar case if the patent owners won. And I was representing Smith & Nephew on the other side, and we were teamed up with um, Zimmer, and we were fighting this patent. And basically, we had looked at a lot of ways to challenge the validity of this patent based on things that were done in the prior art. And we ended up um, finding works done by people all over the place. And we had to follow up with those people and say, hey, what what did you have here? You know, like, how did you do this? We had follow up questions. And one of those guys was in, uh, his name was Dirk Dijkstra, And he was in, uh, he was in Leverkusen. And I went to go meet with him in 2006, I believe. And so that was my like second time in Europe. But what was also cool was that I was going back and forth for that case. And because we ended up doing some work there, I would just say. And um, one of the partners at the firm I was at was also in Europe when I was going to be there. And he was doing business development. And I said, I'm already going to be there. So do you mind if I come along with you on those pitches? And he said, well, if you're already going to be there, I don't have to convince the firm to you know, pay for you to come to Europe with me. And so he did. He let me go into those meetings. and. We actually had like on the first uh, group of meetings a pretty major success in terms of one of my big clients over the years that I worked at my first firm came from that meeting. We went to a meeting in London and it was kind of a funny one because we got the meeting on on a kind of, we didn't have a great connection with the people but they invited us to come and then it was such a short meeting. They asked a few questions, you know, gave us some coffee and then we're like, we need to do some other things. So you guys got to go. And it kind of felt like, well, you might as well do the thing, right? You know, it's good to see if you, if you have an opportunity to follow up on it. But it turned out when I uh, got back to DC, the, um, the person at that company actually called me and said, do you mind if we just transfer all of our patents to you guys? And it was quite a significant portfolio. So what happened then is I was able to, I was, well, the guy was able to invite me back. You know, that the partner was able to justify, well, this guy did the thing, you know, so might as well, if he wants to come, come. So, and then I was able to go to Europe basically two, sometimes three times a year from 2006 up until COVID really. And now I have a lot of clients in Europe. So, um, I go around and visit these, these people. Um, but we always did, uh, trips for like two weeks, We would do like nine cities in two weeks. And we would do sometimes two or three meetings per day in each of these cities. So um, a lot of people said, oh, this is like your vacation. You know, at the office, they're like, oh, you just go on vacation there, right? It's like, well, getting up at 5.30 to get on a train to go to the next city, followed by three meetings, and then it being like close to midnight or after midnight when the last dinner's done, Followed by you know getting on a plane the next day at nine thirty in the morning to you know go to the next city. It was quite grueling actually, but we met. I met so many people. I met so many Europeans. <laughs>
0: but like uh, I, I was reading earlier because I, I didn't have a ton of information. But um, to be a patent attorney, you need to have a background or a degree in something prior to that, like chemistry or biology or or engineering. Or mm-hmm. and and you tell me because I'm just going on what little I know.
1: It's Largely correct um, in order to be registered for, for the patent office. There's technical requirements and those are met by a degree There's other ways you can take classes and stuff, but if you have an engineering degree, then you uh, That's all they need to know you can take the exam and Then you if you have a law degree you're in as a patent attorney registered There's also patent attorneys who focus on litigation in courts And they never went. Maybe they don't even have a technical background, but they got into the, the area.
0: So, so do do you specialize in a particular area of patents? Um, How does that work?
1: I tend to do a lot in the biopharma, medical device area. Um, When I was a patent examiner, I examined in the semiconductor industry. So it's like semiconductor methods of manufacturing. So they. Have wafers and they actually build up the aspects of the chip layer by layer. They use a thing called photolithography and etching different kinds of plasma machines in order to do the steps that are involved and it's really a lot of chemistry and so at the patent office I was focused on that. Um, I haven't done as much of that although i've done some interesting things that are use that technology in other areas um with other clients but that was mostly semiconductor back in 99 to 2004 and then i ended up um after graduation with all those european clients mostly in the biopharma area so if if it was biology it was usually like how they purify proteins, how they process cells, culture cells to make proteins and harvest cells extract and purify proteins, things like that. Or in pharmaceuticals, it's usually small molecules, um, different kinds of synthesis for small molecules and testing that's done in order to fulfill clinical requirements for drugs and patenting all around that. And the process of uh, doing that and growing startup companies, having them get acquired, a lot of times, things things of that nature.
0: Wow! So you have to have a very, very deep background. It's not like you're you know, when the uh, average person thinks of an of an invention or a patent, you know, d- it doesn't go that deep. So I mean, you, you need to know just as much as you know the companies that are designing these. Like what? Yeah. What what exactly is a semiconductor in regular terms? I've always made these jokes about semiconductors, but I have no idea what they are.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, the majority of them are based on silicon uh, material. And uh, there's a processes of adding impurities to silicon that change the electrical properties of it. And uh, there are ways of modulating, the material to create what's called a junction and a junction can be used to create a switch and a switch can be used to compute. Eventually if you, if you put together a bunch of switches diodes, you would actually create earlier computers were made out of that kind of stuff. Actually you had vacuum tubes, which also functioned as switches. Then it became diodes. And then these are individual pieces. So every little computational unit had its own structure back then, but the idea of a integrated circuit came about um, between two two major inventors actually. One was Noyce, who ended up becoming a founder of Intel, and, um, and you had another um, that was related to TI, that ultimately involved wiring the different parts together. So Noyce figured out how to create these junctions inside a single, or several junctions that are connected, I would say several junctions that are separated in a semiconductor uh, piece of material, which would be called a chip. And uh, then you had another inventor who figured out how to wire them all together wire separate things together onto a single chip. So you have layers of stuff that's done to the silicon, and then you have layers of metal that connect the different pieces the way they need to be connected in order to form the circuits that are used to drive chips. And really that basic aspect permeates through to today, where over time they were able to reduce the size of each of those junctions and shove more of them onto a single chip, according to uh, there's a thing called Moore's Law. One of the Intel people, I think Gordon Moore, said that you know, something like every year the the number of uh, the number of circuits or size of a semiconductor would increase by tenfold or something like that. And that had occurred for many many years, where chips became more and more powerful. And today they just have been able to miniaturize them to the point where you can have just many, many, many uh, switches, essentially, onto the same chip. And um, the technology is always pushing the limit. So it's it was always the latest in terms of how small you could etch something, you know, in a material, how small you could put a pattern onto something with photolithography and dealing with, as things became more microscopic, it's almost like on an atomic level where they're able to create patterns and, and do it all in a process that's repeatable and manufacturable and it's an interesting thing. I mean, we lost uh, in the U.S. a lot of our supremacy in that area, though, over the years. And I think it take, it's a 20-year process for that to occur. But when I was at the patent office, I remember examining a lot of things from Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, which is really the world, world leader right now in a lot of chips that are used in phones. And... I think, you know, the U.S. companies were lagging in their patenting. They were kind of riding the economy and doing their thing, but they weren't really at the forefront. And I think now with some of the stuff that's going on with China and Taiwan and potentially, we're looking at that and saying, we should have been more uh, proactive and innovative in the chip industry. And now there's calls to bring some of that back and really work on becoming more proactive but it's an interesting thing that i kind of was seeing in the early 2000s but it's a 20-year process to get back to where we were or if we can ever do it
0: so so what about uh vehicle chips that is common conversation mm-hmm. i mean is that part of anything that you're doing right now i don't because i don't
1: work in that but i would say that i think what happened is is that chips became more ubiquitous And so everything's using computers these days because you can put a computer in everything. It's just really feasible today to have more computers. Um, You know, it's like in the, in the nineties, you had a lot of cars had computers. If you had like a BMW or something like that, definitely had a computer, but they were pushing the envelope of what they could do with computers and cars back then, but at the time, you know, if you think about how powerful computers were in the 1990s, it's just like, I remember in college I I stretched and got a Pentium 90, you know, and it's like, I can't even imagine what it would be like. I don't even know if that computer would be able to run today's software, probably wouldn't. Um, And if it did, it would be very painfully slow. And so I think over time you just saw more more feasible, more practical applications for computers arising because it's just easy to do it now. Like, you don't have to design a specific computer to do something in a car. You can use a general purpose computer in just about anything these days. Like, they have these things called Raspberry Pis. Which is a computer. It's a roughly the size of uh, an iPhone. Um, and it's a fully functional computer. And you can get them and you can use them to control your lights in the house. You can do whatever you want with them. I actually have one right now where, with my son, we have programmed this thing to control a, a, a robotic car. And uh, it's just, it's doable now. And it's kind of fun because you can actually put that kind of stuff together and play around with it and the the thing that makes it different is is that if you had like a robotic car that you bought in the store for the most part they would have always had a very specifically designed computer chip for that car that ran programs that were in there and uh, this thing allows you to do whatever you want you can kind of use your wi-fi to to log into the the computer of the car and make you do what you
0: want. So a lot of little fun things like that. But that is fun having you for a dad. <laughs> I, I had all these simple questions, you know, when, you know, the normal person thinks of, about a patent. Uh, I mean, I didn't realize you were that deep. I mean, I'm looking at you as a guy down at Start Hill who's <laughs> approving new inventions, but this is quite beyond uh, the imagination that I had of what you do. That's pretty amazing. I mean, you just, you're just a guy hanging out at runs and uh, changing the world pretty much. <laughs> so, uh, it is
1: interesting because you do. Uh, I've had the opportunity to be involved in things that do have uh, a real world impact. For instance, um, I worked with two, two people back in 2011, wrote a patent application. They develop, were developing a new kind of drug for hyperkalemia. Just too much potassium. People show up in the ER. They have symptoms of a heart attack. <laughs> so they're they need to lower their potassium badly, and this drug does that. And uh, it was um, the drug is called Localma. and it was an interesting experience for me because I wrote the patent application for it. I worked with the startup through their IPO, and after the IPO, we did a lot of things, and they ended up getting acquired. Um, they were acquired by AstraZeneca for $2.7 billion in cash. Um, And there was a lot of interest in that particular product at the time. And there was a lot of scrutiny on the patent application. And that was fun for me because I wrote it. So I had a lot of people asking questions and things and making sure it would be an effective patent for that. So um, I think, I also just learned a lot about the whole drug development process. Because when you work with a startup, you get to know everything about what happens along the way. So you end up seeing how the parts fit together. More so than if you work for a big company and they just have you do this one thing. And you just do that. Um, And what's cool about that particular product is that whenever I meet anybody who's worked in an ER, they know it. They know it here, they and, and all around the country, probably in Europe too, because it was a pretty important drug. And, um, yeah, things like that. You know, you don't get a lot of those experiences, those are like you get a, f- a certain number of them, I guess, in a career if you're lucky. And, um, I was fortunate in that way, and it is a largely. Luck because it depends on who you're working with and whether they have a success or not. But I've used it quite a bit in teaching. So I've been invited to teach in a lot of uh, graduate programs and things. Uh, when I was in New York, I taught at Shiva University, and um, I was invited to speak at a lot of the universities in New York. And actually, on Monday, I did um, a class in chemistry for uh, Reniceller uh, Polytech and uh, was able to talk to the chemistry students about patents. And uh, it was an interesting presentation for me because I've been working on telling the story better so that people can understand it or are more interested in it. And rather than talk about the case that just comes along that it has the legal issue, which I think a lot of people do, but there's no way to connect with anybody and what that, why that case mattered at all. And so what I did was I went back and I, I have a a blog which I call Inventive Adventures, and www.inventiveadventures.com where I've put forth some stories about patents that were important. And what I did with this lecture is that I used those stories to tell the patent to teach the patent stuff. So I kind of had to go back and look at the patent claims and see how the case went came out and then made a presentation about the issue but involving like Edison's light bulb patent which is an interesting patent. Um,
0: we talked about that. Go into that a little bit, because that's real, it was really cool, the story that you told me about that.
1: Yeah, so there's a quote by Edison. Um, a reporter said something to him like, you know, aren't you disappointed that you had to try 10,000 things before you found something that worked? And he said something to the effect of, you know, I, I, I haven't failed 10,000 times. I just found 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. (laughs) And in that case, that quote, and I I, I wasn't sure if that quote ever came from that case. You couldn't really, I wasn't sure if that was directly from that case, but I think it probably was because when you look at the Supreme Court case that involved the Edison light bulb, it's called the incandescent lamp case. (laughs) Normally, they use the parties. I don't know what, but they called it the incandescent lamp case, and it's got the Supreme Court sites. Um, they go into detail about how Edison was trying to improve the light bulb. So there were like 20 or 30 light bulb patents already at the time he started. So it was like, right there, you have the mindset of Edison, which is like, yeah, well, there's a bunch of patents out there, but none of it works. Um, none of them last a long time you know i think that they were saying a lot of them lasted you know an hour and you know who wants a light bulb that lasts one hour It'd be tough
0: to sell yeah Lowe's promises me that they last like 13 years now but i don't think that's it's an interesting thing 100 true yeah 13 years
1: <laughs> nobody's around to, <laughs> nobody's keeping track anymore <laughs> that kind of thing
0: i do i write the date on them that's good no it's a lot all right go ahead sorry <laughs> <laughs>
1: So the, the thing that Edison did was he actually had a, he had his research facility and he had people working for him <laughs> and he sent people all around the world because what they were doing is they were making the filaments back then out of plant material. They, fi- they would use fibers like paper and they would put carbon on it, carbonized filament. And what they were doing is, is they were testing different materials and... I think that's where he got 10,000 from because I think they tested probably 10,000 different kinds of materials because they ended up focusing on and finding one particular material that became the material that he used, which was bamboo from a particular part of Japan. You know, the idea was that they were actually looking at bamboo from all over the place. It just happened to be in one particular place. The bamboo grew in a certain way. And afterwards, they were able to look at the structure of it. And they said, it's like when you look at it with a microscope, it turns out that the, the fibers are really heavily aligned in one direction compared to other natural fibers. And they ended up making the light bulbs out of that material. And I think it was 1,200 hours is what they got, which at that time was pretty good. And in that case, what happened was... Um, there was another group called Sawyer who was developing light bulb as well had a patent on it and the patent was before Edison's patent so it's called prior art but it's also excuse me if it um, covers what Edison is doing in its in its claims, then Edison would infringe this patent so Westinghouse purchased that patent from Sawyer became the owner of it, and sued General Electric and Edison. their development of the light bulb. And the Supreme Court looked at the case and said, yeah, but all you say in that earlier patent is something like carbonized paper as the filament. And we know that doesn't work. So they had this really broad claim, but they didn't have much that they taught in terms of how to actually improve the situation. And the court went into significant detail talking about all the work Edison did to get there and said we can't enforce this patent against Edison when the earlier Sawyer patent really didn't teach anything like what was needed to bring this thing to work. And what what it illustrates is a concept in patent law called the enablement requirement. And it's uh, a requirement that looks at the scope of the claims It says, if you make a really broad claim, you have to really support that whole full claim scope. And it usually looks to see if you're trying to cover something that's a drastic improvement, it may be difficult. And that was the lesson from patent law. But I think the story is more interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, but I, you know, it's, it's how a human brain is wired to, Uh, retain information in story format. So if you can tell a good story while you're teaching it, the student's more likely to remember the lesson. And I think that's what really kind of gets me to want to look at these things in views of stories. And the stories are often interesting in their own right. I mean, the Thomas Edison one just involved that sheer amount of Wrote effort that went into development of the light bulb, um, and it was really like that set them on the path of making light bulbs. And they all knew that if you could make a filament out of tungsten wire, it would be the best thing. But they never figured out how to stretch out tungsten into a wire until I think it was 1913. This guy Langmuir that was working with GE got a patent on how to make a tungsten filament. And that ended up being the light bulb that we maybe even still t- use today to some degree. Certainly those like cool, fashionable, old school light bulbs. A lot of those probably had tungsten filaments and, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting because that's how innovation a lot, a lot of times work. You have to get to a point where it becomes a business and then it's worth pushing the envelope. Eventually you get there, you figure out the thing, um, and um, I think that's an that's kind of an interesting story, and it's also just everybody knows a light bulb, so makes it.
0: Or, 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 so, what's the limit? Like, let's say we get the Edison light bulb approved, the twelve hundred hour one, just as an example. Um, for how many years before anyone can duplicate that?
1: So, patents are today, you get twenty years of exclusivity from the filing date. So you file your patent application and roughly more or less three years after you file it, it gets granted as a patent. And then the idea being that there's 17 years left for you to exploit your invention. Um, That law changed in 1995. We, we became more harmonized with the rest of the world. But before that, it used to be that you got 17 years after your patent granted But what was happening is is that there were patents that were pending in the patent office for 20 years and they'd come out and they would have 17 years of life on them. And they'd cover, like there were patents in the 1990s that came out that covered barcode readers that had been out since the seventies and everybody was using. And it was the bane of the existence for a lot of companies. And there was a lot of motivation to curb those abuses. And ultimately we did it when we were doing all the WTO stuff. So international trade was linked to it. And part of it was other countries would prefer that we use a system more like theirs, which was always tied to the filing date. Um, but patents back in those days were really in, in in a way more valuable than they are today. Um, in some aspects, irrespective of the invention, because you got 17 years from the issuance, they often ended up being valuable beyond their time kind of thing.
0: Seems seems like to me the gray area and the, the level of research that you'd have to do, you know, for others who are claiming to make, you know, the same products just seems endless to me. And especially once you get into talking about making semiconductors and chips and things like that. Uh, yeah, that's true. It, it, it's. I mean, I mean, I can imagine myself being a judge and stepping up on the stand, and someone explaining that to me, and I would be like, uh, "Okay, all right."
1: Judges will work with, well, both parties on both sides are fighting, right? And the way litigation goes is that each side tells their story through witnesses. That's how you do a litigation. You're calling witnesses, and the other side gets to cross-examine those witnesses, and. One side will have their experts and the other side will have their experts and each gets to cross examine each other. And the judge essentially presides over the thing. And then the parties file papers uh, in the process. Um, You could have a jury trial where a jury actually decides the issues or a judge trial, bench trial, we call it. And in those cases, um, the judge will issue an opinion and, The opinion will include the judge's findings and so forth. Um, But there will also be different kinds of motions that can occur. And the judge ends up, for the most part, judging between two sides, rather than trying to come up with anything on their own. They tend to mostly decide that they found one expert credible over the other on a particular issue. And then that shapes how they decide the case.
0: Yeah, that's that's a lot. I mean, for the average person to try to understand the scientifics of what you're talking about, I mean, it's hard for you know one, one judge said OJ killed his wife, another one said he didn't. I mean, so how do you know? <laughs>
1: well, you know, they have um, obviously cases get decided, and the parties there's always one side that disagrees with the outcome. Um, yeah, the judges are sort of in the position where they are forced to make a decision based on everything that they're presented with, for the most part. There isn't a lot of room for saying, uh, well, you know, (laughs) you guys figure out some other way. (laughs) The judge has to decide the case. And so that's how that that usually goes down.
0: Yeah, but you're talking about the United States. We're talking about products that are made all over the world. How does it work internationally? Oh. Especially in gyms. I mean, you're talking about, uh, I mean... China's big in technology, Japan. How, what's uh how do you differentiate that? I mean, can you just copy their things and they not know?
1: <laughs> Patents are territorial. So, a US patent covers what happens in the United States. A Japanese patent covers what happens in Japan. And when I file patent applications for companies or inventors, we start we start off in the United States because we're based here. Um but we file what's called a Patent Cooperation Treaty application, which is more or less a placeholder that gives us two and a half years from the filing date that we filed in the United States to then file in all these other countries. And the key thing there is we're delaying the cost because it's very expensive for me to decide that we're going to file in 13 different countries. So that means I'm reaching out to 13 law firms in each of those countries, retaining them, and having them refile the same application with translations into the local language, and it ends up being on the order of 50,000 to 100,000 dollars immediately upon doing that for each case. So it's the kind of thing where we're trying to delay that. We'd rather do it in two and a half years than do it today, because that gives us a little time to figure out whether the invention's worth doing it for and raise money, maybe, things like that. Um, But each country has their own judicial system and their own way of doing patents, their own examination procedures, their own local agents. Um, I'm going to a conference in June in Paris, and I'll meet up with attorneys from all over the world. And, you know, I have a lot of contacts from that, but I also have contacts from doing this for years. In pretty much every country... There's a law firm that knows me, um, which is a really cool thing when I travel, is there's always somebody to meet.
0: I had, a, I had a question. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. Like I got caught up in that, but um, I don't know. Give me, give me just a second. But mm-hmm. uh, so I guess that is reciprocal in the United States. So if you don't file it in those other countries, you also can lose your technology. But it seems like to me with as fast as technology is growing, if you file a patent today, you know, six months or a year from now, you it could be totally irrelevant based on the speed of technology.
1: There's always a possibility that technology disrupts the thing that you're patenting. Um, I mean, the, the I I can't really tell you whether an invention is going to succeed or not. I can maybe point out some ones that I think probably aren't based on my experience, but that's not really what I do. The inventors like are have to take the responsibility to decide whether they want to move forward with something, whether it's worth patenting and all that stuff. Um, and my track record of predicting what would be successful, I have to say, um, uh, I'm humbled by it because it's um, the things that have been the most successful I, I didn't think would be successful and many things that I think, wow, that's pretty cool. I, you know, maybe didn't make it. So it's, it's really tough to tell because there's so many other aspects that go into whether an invention will succeed. There are many famous cases of patents that were filed and the technology took longer to develop than it you know the patent had expired or was expiring before the invention could be commercialized cuz you can think way into the future you know like buck rogers or whatever you know but maybe even stuff that would be considered enabled but The technology isn't there to do it. A good case for that is the Velcro. Velcro was invented by a guy in the 1950s, I believe. He was hiking with his dog, and there were these weird burrs that were collecting on his dog. And he looked at them, and he realized there's little hooks there. And they were interacting with the dog's hair. And he thought, wow, I can make a fastener with this. But he had to go from natural products that just won't work in terms of manufactured article, figuring out how to make a woven fabric that includes all this stuff. And the thing that really he lacked for many years was something that could be formed into hooks. The hook part of the Velcro was the part that really stumped him. And what happened was that um, other developments occurred, and that nylon was invented. And the cool thing about nylon is you can weave it into you can weave it into loops into a fabric. You can then heat it up and melt it, and then you can drag something along and cut out half of it on each row, and that makes the hooks. Um, And he couldn't do that when he first started with this invention because he didn't have, so for 10 years, he sat around looking for the right material. (laughs) And thankfully for him, in a way, he never was able to patent the earlier stuff because those patents would have expired before he ever had a chance to do anything with it. But what was funny is he developed the material. He figured out how to make it, got it working, and then nobody wanted it. It just sat there and the thing that really made velcro um widely accepted was the apollo space mission because they it solved their problem of things floating around like pins and stuff so they put velcro on everything i think there were like 500 pieces of velcro in the apollo capsule and that was widely publicized and after that, everybody wanted the Velcro, like Velcro, you know, sneakers. And, you know, it's funny because that even took a lot longer after his patents were filed. And I would say that they enjoyed only a few years of really good commercial success while the patents were valid.
0: Wait, what year are we talking about?
1: It would be the 60s and 70s, I think. Okay. Yeah. I think they expired in the 70s, his patents.
0: So you don't think about that stuff, like simple things like that or in any other simple cases that were notable that you can Hmm. I have a lot um, give, give me give me one or two of the best one or two of the best okay
1: um I like the um paper clip as this guy William Hunt who's um uh, he was an inventor
0: lately L- no, in uh oh yeah L- sorry yeah So, he was an inventor. We want to be able to hear you. Exactly.
1: He's an inventor, uh, invented a lot of little things, um, but he was also just broke and living in New York City. And he ran out of money. And um, he knew a guy, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was also, this particular patent attorney that he knew was also the he was also the patent examiner and patent attorney at the same time back then like they didn't have any separation between government employees and and not it's kind of really interesting but that guy was involved i think he was an examiner on the morse patent for morse code you know actually samuel morse's patent so these everybody knew each other back then (laughs) but this guy william hunt needed money and so he um Basically, no, it, and I shouldn't say paper, it was not the paper, it was the safety pen. He developed a safety pen out of brass. He basically fashioned it, formed it up, made an example and said this would be a great way to fasten clothes or whatever. They filed the patent application, filed it. The same day it was filed, the patent attorney made a deal with uh, W.R. Grace to sell the patent to them for $300 and that was 1849 so 300 bucks was a good amount of money back then but they went and made a million dollars off of it he didn't get to see any of that um he also went and invented a sewing machine and he licensed it to singer brothers so the singer sewing machines and he also uh, licensed he, he, he made a rifle and he licensed it to winchester so he was very prolific and pretty good at what he was doing. Uh, but he was always broke. And I think the he was about to make money off of the one of his inventions, I believe, the, the sewing machine. And he finally got it to the point where they agreed to grudgingly pay him $50,000, which would have been a lot of money back then. And before the uh, money was given to him, he died in, of pneumonia. <laughs> so it's kind of a sad story. <laughs>
0: Gosh, yeah. I, I bet there are tons of cases like that, and and you, you and you get no recourse. Obviously, you know corporations are not going to look back and think, "Well, no, let's do something for that guy." <laughs> no.
1: You know, it's funny. It's like Charles Goodyear is another story. He he invented vulcanized rubber, and he was back then. They had all the rubber was natural rubber, came from like Indonesia, whatever uh, the rubber plant. And they would make shoes and stuff out of it but the problem is, is the soles would last like like about a week so everybody knew it'd be a great material if he could like strengthen it and Goodyear spent a good part of his life trying to do that and he was in debt he was in debtor's prison at some point this is like in the early 1800s we had debtor's prison um different world back then he was still working on this invention while he was in prison <laughs> kind of funny Uh, but he was what he did was he was demonstrating some of the stuff that he was working with and messing with things and he had the idea of trying to add sulfur to it and they were kind of blending it together and things like that and he was flinging some around and some landed on the stove and it cooked and when it cooked it formed the material that is like a car tire Vulcanized rubber means you add sulfur and you heat it. (laughs) And he patented that. And the sad thing in his case is that the U.S. was a nothing country at that point. The British Empire was where it's at. So the British patent would have been much nicer. And he sent a a sample of his material to the real rubber person of the world in Britain, which is called a guy named Hancock. And he didn't tell him how to make it, but he sent a sample there, and that was not a good decision because once you know something can be made, you'll try everything to get there. And Hancock did do that, and he reverse engineered and eventually filed his own patent application, and he filed it a week before Goodyear filed his European or his not European his United Kingdom patent, and. And to make things worse, they attacked Hancock's patent based on Goodyear's sending him a sample. But under European law, it was different. So European law was not a first to invent country. It didn't care who was first to invent. It was always who who was the first to file. And once the court was satisfied, that Goodyear never told Hancock, how to make it, and Hancock filed first. The he, uh, Goodyear lost the case, but he was actually, unfortunately, not very smart about litigation. He traveled to the UK for the case, and Hancock, before the day that the judgment was going to come out, offered to split up the worldwide half with him. And because Goodyear was so insistent that he was the first inventor, which he was. He didn't take the deal, and he lost everything. He still had his U.S. patent, but it wasn't worth much. And he died pretty poor. And the company Goodyear has nothing to do with him. They used his name.
0: Wow. Nobody knows that.
1: Not many. (laughs) It's really crazy, isn't it? So Goodyear is not the guy. Right. Right. They just used his name. I mean, they commemorated him, sure. But he's already dead, and
0: it's tragic. I bet there's a ton of tragic stories like that. But it, like e- even right now, current day, I mean, I'm sure there are just tons of battles in which people don't necessarily take the right steps and they lose out.
1: Where I think people are smarter these days about doing deals. You know, I mean. It, I can't, well, I mean, no, people can be, the thing is, is inventors are a special type of person. Uh, You know, they're, they are inventors because they don't take, they don't agree with everything. They're not as agreeable as other people. They're not as split the thing and be happy business-wise, suck it up and move on. Some of them feel very strongly. They want to be vindicated for, they want to be known as the inventor. They don't want it to be questioned. And they don't want to compromise in that way. And I think that that a lot of times financially hurts them a lot. And that's what happened in that case. And there are many other cases where inventors make decisions like that, that arguably weren't great financial decisions or weren't great risk management decisions. You know, sometimes if you look at it and you say, okay, you know, why not just settle being rich? You <laughs> know It's cool. You're going to make a lot of money even if you cut it in half. Um, and, you know, most corporations make decisions that way these days. So corporations are not usually very egoistic about it. They're just like, what's going to be the best for the shareholders, bottom line, stuff like that. And, um, you know, why gamble here it, when you... Loss means you would walk away with nothing, that kind of thing. So um, I see that a lot. I see that a lot. And it's funny because the whole getting credit for the invention is a big part of it. in a lot of them inventors' minds, they just want their legacy. They want to be known as the inventor. And a lot of times that's, that costs them a lot of money to have that sort of egoistic pride. But they wouldn't be inventors if they didn't have that in the first place, so it's sort of like part and parcel, you know. But that's for a lot of people, it's hard to understand.
0: Yeah, confidentiality is key in all things, but confidentiality in your, in your line of work, you know, you, you breach that, you could you disappear. Like, uh,
1: yeah, we don't. Yeah, I, everything. That's... If people approach me about an invention, for instance, it's like I need to, I need to make a judgment as whether. I can ethically represent the person. Um, mostly that involves whether I have a conflict of interest. So one thing that comes up is you gain a lot of experience in a particular area. And then people who know you have that experience want to use you. But if you're still working with the company that is their competitor that gave you that experience, whether it's ethical or, you know, it's it sort of, there's the ethical rules. And then there's also, for me, the relationship. So I wouldn't want to mess with that at all. Um, I'm now, fortunately, at the point where my clients... I have a long-standing relationship with most all of my clients. And I wouldn't even want to come close to breaching um, that relationship. Even if the ethical rules would allow you to do this. So that's kind of a thing that comes up frequently. So you could be... If you're just trying to get the most amount of work conflicted in a conflicting situation, but long-term you just can't treat people that way. And it's like, also I just look at it. It's like, I know too much. You know, one of the problems is if I know a lot about a particular area that I've learned from a particular client and somebody else asked me to draft a patent application right in that area, who's to say that stuff that they one client gave me doesn't spill out to the other. So there's really real considerations there that we watch out for all the time in, in in that kind of thing. But the other thing is, is that if somebody comes to me and I hear them out about their idea, there's no way I'm going to do anything with that. You know, that would be against their interest. Um Even if I couldn't take them as a client, I would just go to the grave with that information. Um, If it turns out there would would have been a conflict, I I, I couldn't take it because of a conflict. I would do as much as possible to not allow that information to be used in a bad way, even if they wouldn't be inclined. So you end up in these situations, you have to make the best judgment. And, you know, I've had it where before somebody's talking to me and I know they're in an area and I know too much. I I stop me. I, I represent this you know, I can't I can't take you on as a client, so please stop telling me anything. Don't tell me anything about what your invention is and if you need help finding an attorney, I'll help you with that. I know people. Um that kind of thing. Um, but it is a it is an interesting area. And yeah, you know, it's funny too because it's like that pride of invention can be used in different ways, like the the guy who was the voice of Tigger and Winnie the Pooh, patented an artificial heart. He actually was making the dummies and stuff. Turns out he was friends with Dr. Heimlich in New York City. Dr. Heimlich was a famous doctor, and we know him from the Heimlich maneuver, but he was also a surgeon, and he was doing a lot of heart surgeries. And, um, He was also just on the scene in New York and going to casting parties and things like that. And that's where he met uh, this guy, who was the the voice of Tigger from Wendy the Pooh. And he was a famous ventriloquist. Um, I can look up his name real quick. But uh, he he encouraged his ventriloquist friend and his idea, because what was happening was he would go to the this is a different world a different time but they were friends enough that they were hang, he was hanging out at the surgical site and they were losing a lot of patients because they were their hearts were failing or they needed an artificial heart to keep the blood going while surgeries were happening and that was his idea in their in the 50s early 50s i believe so Heimlich, um, is, his name's Paul Winchell, and Heimlich encouraged Paul Winchell to file his patent application on the artificial heart, which is really like a wood mechanical thing. That he got the patent issued. It was such a novel concept back then. There wasn't much prior art, but he, he never developed it into a working artificial heart, of course. It just sat there in the archives, patent office. Um, but then in the 1970s, you actually started to see the Jarvik is the developer of the actual artificial heart at the University of Utah. They actually made the first implanted in human working artificial heart that happened in the early 80s. And the university was dealing with the patent application and it got rejected the Jarvik Heart patent application got rejected over Paul Winchell's 1950s as prior art. And because it came up, there was also a question as to whether they would infringe Paul Winchell's artificial heart. So the university reached out to him and said, Would you mind just donating your patent to us? We actually were making a real artificial heart. And He said, I would be happy to. And he did. And Paul Winchell, to his death, claimed he's the inventor of the artificial heart. And Jarvik was really pissed. (laughs) (laughs) Thinks it's a scam. It wasn't real. And the university department messed up by asking him to donate it. Because once he donated it, they pretty much took it under license for free. Zero dollars. And business-wise made a lot of sense. But from the perspective of the egoistic inventor who wants to be known as the inventor he had to share in a way. And Jarvik has always disputed that. And Winchell always said, I donated my pet. What do you mean? They asked me to. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so like, it's a funny story, right? It's like the reverse. Somebody gains the sort of moral inventorship claim if you ask me, I you know, there wasn't much that Winchell really contributed to the actual development of a working artificial heart. It's a good idea. It might not have been what we call enabling. If Winchell had had to sue Jarvik, wouldn't it have been just like with the Edison patent where the court would look at it and say, you didn't really. You have this broad claim earlier like Sawyer did, but you didn't really provide the public with the invention. You're just suing over it. And that might have been, I think it would likely have been found to lack enablement and would have been invalid if Winchell had tried to sue them. So it was really a mistake on the part and way of the licensing department, the university or the university patent department to ask for that, because it gave an opening it was a good economic decision but the actual inventor really hated it and it ended up being kind of a, a stain on the complete claim to have totally invented the real working artificial heart but people in the industry i think probably don't doubt that he was really jarvik was really the driver of getting this thing through clinical trials and such that it would actually be implanted in somebody but it's also an interesting story, too, because Winchell knew Heimlich, and Heimlich always supported Winchell. So people ask Heimlich, who do you think invented the art? well, oh, it was Winchell. He did it. And Heimlich was involved. <laughs> so they were friends.
0: So That's a crazy business. Let, let's take five. But okay. I just want to say, you know, in this type of work, even though you've got a constant battle between you know uh, opposing parties... You know, you don't hear anything about it like other things because I guess you have to shut your mouth. Yeah, that's dead. what's
1: fun about telling these stories because I don't—I'm <laughs> not involved, so I can just say whatever I want. And I can bring it all up. Yeah, just, but you're right. Yeah, I so so no, I, matter, I, no, it, no
0: matter how mad you are, you have to shut your mouth, except yeah, I, through legal, you know, battles. Exactly. Okay, <laughs> let's take five. I got a lot more stuff. still here yeah here. yeah lean close to that microphone. okay yeah, get it good <laughs> all right so i i um you know just just have all these thoughts based on you know the conversation that we've just had now for a while and and i based it on me just hanging out around roanoke doing trail runs and doing things and like i said i met you after a bike ride one night and you were telling me all about what you did i was like that's that's really cool and really strange to me and I'm just not sure, and then, you know, I just think about, we sit beside people at all these places all the time in this small town of Roanoke, and you have no idea, riding a bike together, that you travel the world nonstop, involved in all these awesome things, and um, you know, it kind of makes me, you know, I'm really glad that we've, that we, you know, that we've done the podcast, because I've had tons of people come through this room, all right, get down, we've got a cat in the room, and I have tons of people come through this room that are from all over the country, all over the world, and, and do all these awesome things, and they end up, you know, right here in my basement in my house in Boone's Mill, and you know, just hearing what the stuff that you say is it's pretty amazing. So I'm I'm glad that we get to showcase people from, you know, who who are around here, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know, it's pretty awesome. We're gonna keep going, and I I think what not only piqued me about your you know your career stuff is I was on Facebook one day and i saw that you were in colombia and i was like you know all my life i've studied colombia because of the, the you know the unrest mm-hmm. and it was always in the newspaper when i was young and it was always in the newspaper because of really really uh, you know brutally violent you know uh, cocaine wars exactly and i just thought that is not where i want to be but I, I, I want to see it from afar. So, I, I mean, I read about that place forever. And I saw that you were down there having dinner in these sky bars, you know, yep. looking down from the mountains onto the cities. And I was like, holy cow. I sent you a message while you were in Columbia. And I was like, look, I don't know what we'll talk about. Will you show up, I mean, we'll we'll figure it out. I, I, I guess we'll figure it out. I have no idea what we'll talk about. You didn't even send me a a, a, a bio today. So I have no notes on you except for a couple questions I had. and, and uh, But I saw that. I was like, that is amazing. So your world travel, I thought, was mostly for work, but it's not mostly for work. It's a lot of... Um, because you want to. I, I want to learn about Columbia first.
1: True. Um, well, we've had this pandemic. <laughs> and so all my business travels was cut off. I mean, people don't go to the office. So it's hard to have a a meeting with somebody and everybody's doing everything on teams in Europe and so forth. So for a good part of the pandemic, um, my travel was actually limited to my own personal travel. So the thing is, is it started out in Mexico. Um, I, um, joined this new law firm in 2020 and we did a, uh, a get together in Cosimo and my flight back was really bad and I work from home. So I decided I'm not going to do that flight and everything back then, you could change the flights without consequence because of COVID. So I was like, well, let's check out Playa del Carmen, which is across the way in Mexico. So I went to Playa del Carmen and got an Airbnb and I I usually like to stay in the Airbnb rather than a hotel. It's just, for me, it feels like I'm closer to whatever community I'm in. If I'm at an actual Airbnb, there's a host who's a real person, um, versus at a hotel with concierge. And they're basically going to see a lot of tourists and things. And it's going to be like 10 times as expensive usually. So, um, for the most part, I like to use the Airbnbs. And I was doing that there. Um, I met a group of people and, ended up inviting a buddy of mine. And so I ended up staying in Playa del Carmen for uh, like a month last year. Um, And I started reaching out to some of my friends who had become digital nomads during the pandemic. And one of my buddies, Ryan, actually was in Costa Rica. And we had somewhat planned tentatively meet up in Costa Rica, but he was like, dude, I'm moving to Medellin next. That's my next spot, Colombia. He's like, you should come check it out. And I was like, Colombia, man. I had the same thoughts you had. Because, you know, when I was, you know, what was the 1990s? Early 2000s? It's like oh, Pablo yeah. Escobar, all that stuff. And Medellin was like the center of like judges being executed. And the there was the Pablo Escobar. And then when he was forced out, there was the people who were anti-Pablo Escobar who were just as bad. And then the people who were anti-anti that. And it was like really just a terrible situation uh, for the country to go through. And you also had the rebels, the Farks and all that stuff who are still there, but like, kind of like marginalized at the moment. Um, although I have to say they're, at any point in time, you could be driving down the street and people jump out in front of you with, uh, you know, sort of, fully wrapped in black and stop traffic and create a havoc for a while for the most part if you're in a big city there's not much that's going to happen to you they're not kidnapping americans like they used to that kind of thing um and i think the threat level of the violence in machine is exactly the same as it is in new orleans right now so that's about the kind of thing i look you got to watch your back when you're in new orleans it's no joke <laughs> yeah, no. You, you don't go, want to go walk around the wrong neighborhood there you,
0: you, you didn't see anybody jump out of the car and do that did you
1: well i have a friend there um she showed me video the other day of this happening actually to her um yeah i can share it with you here. well it's pretty crazy <laughs> you, you know
0: the, the story was they would ride by on those little motorcycles mm-hmm. and just blow people away
1: yeah they're not blowing people away i don't think we and we, you know, um, my friend Louisa, who had this thing
0: occur with her, um, just last week. You're pulling this up. I feel like you're like young Jamie on Joe Rogan, like show it, to I, show I totally it, totally, dude. Show it, Jamie. You got s I mean, let's see it. Pull it up on the screen. I'm going to see
1: if I can get this for you, but you know, we're we'll going to see if we get it. But if we can't get it in a second, but the thing is, is um, she does transportation logistics, so she pretty much knows. Like where the trucks are, where they can go, where they get robbed, you know where they get hijacked, and stuff that does happen trucks so, so
0: it's mostly robbery stuff now, yeah, so,
1: things are robberies and stuff and well I mean,
0: well, I mean back then it was it was pure on violence, it didn't matter, Well, I mean, you just abducted Americans, and well, I guess they got a lot of oil folks and you know demanded ransom, stuff like that, but yeah, okay, let's see this so is, is, it, is this your friend that videoed this mm-hmm.
1: she's she's a she's in the unfortunate spot of being the front car when they started stopping cars on the on the freeway there
0: holy cow
1: i mean those guys don't look like nice guys do they
0: no they they don't
1: <laughs> she was there for like an hour
0: but there was what, what? So what's the point? You know, guys are in black suits and they are. I'm not sure. I'm
1: not sure what, they, that, what their end game is there. A lot of times they were doing it to protest. Um, we all. When I first went to Columbia the first time was in May of last year, and I,
0: I remember that's when my interest peaked.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so I went there to visit my buddy Ryan, and. Um, the first time I went in, I got deported. I'd never been deported from a country before. I had the wrong kind of test. They wanted a PCR. I got the antigen test. To fly back to Miami, I was actually kicked out to Miami. <laughs> but you know, an American for, for a, for a COVID dep- test. Yeah, for a COVID oh. test. Yeah, it was so st- stupid um, in the sense of everything that has been done stupidly. They were they were about on par for that, right? I mean. You could get a COVID test, but the policy was... They were really, at the time, trying to discourage anybody from coming to the country. So, that's a good way to do it, right? Yeah, brutal. brutal. Uh, I would say brutal, but, like, huge consequence for not... I mean, because I, I basically had to pay for the plane to go twice. Went so back to Miami. Got the right tests. I did come back. I was there. I lost two days on my Columbia trip, which was out of a little over a week so it wasn't too bad I still you know I had to explain to the Airbnb like I'm not going to be there today and of course you got to pay for it when you're not there unless it's booked and all that but um end up getting there met up with my buddy um and um really enjoyed the time in in Najin. um I met that girl Louisa hung out um and uh I got an invitation to come back. So I came back. I came back in August. Um, well, actually, um, well, I was in Mexico City in June. So Louisa came out there to visit me in Mexico City and then got invited back. Uh, we went and we had planned a trip, a road trip, which was the coolest thing to drive. This is the kind of thing that you would never do as an American. On your own. I would highly recommend not to do that if you don't have anybody with you who's local um, in Colombia. And e- the, re- the e- reason is
0: ex- Explain that. Where'd, where'd you go?
1: So there's a place that was a city that was founded in 1500 and it's called Villa de Leba. V I L L A. And then in, in, in Colombian, when you have two L's instead of like in, in Spanish, in Mexico, Spanish, you say. It would be like Villa, Villa de Leva. But in Colombia, it's Villa de Leva. So they say like Paja and Medellin, mm-hmm. a lot of J sounds. So I went to Villa de Leva, which is like going up into the mountains. I don't know if you've been to Santa Fe, New Mexico, but it totally reminded me of Santa Fe, New Mexico. It's like a, a almost like plush desert landscape, low trees. Mountains everywhere you look, uh you know crisp, clean air, high up, good altitude, um lots of things like horseback riding and like a lot of um really interesting like outdoor adventure kind of places, and just the town is kind of cool because it's like cobblestone streets that were built in fifteen hundred It used to be the capital of Grand Columbia, you know back in the day when Simon Bolivar liberated that whole area of the world from Spain. Like, there were several attempts to liberate from Spain, but Bolivar was the successful one. Uh, And he created Gran Colombia, and that was the capital of that whole region. You know, Bogota wasn't anything at that point. Adegine was in the mountains. Nothing really. Um, Villa de Leyva was, like, really... I think a lot of it was the fact that you could ride horses back and forth up there in the mountains, in that kind of mountainous region. Other parts of Colombia, I can't even imagine. They must have been completely undiscovered for many, many, many years because you're talking like it's just such thick vegetation and so forth um, to try to traverse it. And the rivers are so huge. Like today, it was like you when you – when you drive in colombia you start off say in uh, um medellin medellin's a big bowl that's really high up on a mountain so it's, you got it's it's called i think they call them andean bowls but it's like you're up in the mountains and you, there's a bowl it goes down so it's like you're looking at the equatorial sort of aspect but you're high up in the mountains. So it's cool and wet and sunny. And it's like they call it the city of the eternal spring because it's always the same temperature, more or less. It's slightly coolish, sunny, and, you know, kind of for us in the 70s, maybe 80 something. Um,
0: it's just like Burke's Garden. <laughs> same thing
1: yeah, yeah yeah so what's kind of cool about Medellin is the city's in this almost like tropical thing because you go down into the city and then when you go up around the edge of it it's pine trees and mountains so you're way up and uh there it's cool it's really cool so it's like you're gonna be like you don't think you need to bring a sweater to, you got to bring a sweater to Colombia because you're gonna be up in the mountains a lot of times it's like you're in pine trees and bonfires and you know, the, 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 they like a lot of uh, mold wine, you know, like spiced wine. You know? and,
0: and you're on the equator. And you're on the equator.
1: It's it, like, you don't think that. You just think, I thought, just tropical, it's going to be hot, humid, all that stuff. So when you drive, though, if you do, we drove to Villa de Leva, which is literally like a 20-hour drive to go 300 kilometers. <laughs> yeah, because it's, there's no direct routes. All the roads there go over mountaintops along ridges of mountaintops and because the um people there develop cities in the mountains because when you go low it's hot and humid and disgusting and rivers are the rivers when you look at them they're fast moving brown water you know, like kind of muddy water uh, and you just look at it and you're like it's going by so quickly and it's so huge like if a car fell in the river you'd probably never see the car ever again you know it would probably be in the atlantic ocean or something like that but these are big rivers and they go through these areas and it's like that you don't have any towns down by the rivers because i think they overflow a lot and it just would wipe everything out uh so it's kind of like weird because the roads go by the rivers And by the way, when you're in Colombia, the roads are constantly under construction and there's constantly one way things. So you're constantly stopped waiting for, you know, the people to say you can go now because the oncoming track is done like that happened so many times on just just driving throughout the country. It's everywhere. Their infrastructure is really not good (laughs) compared to the United States. It really makes you appreciate the freeway system that we have. Um, we tend to take everything for granted about what we have. And it's like in Colombia to go 300 kilometers, which is nothing in the United States is an all day thing. And who knows what happens along the way. So, um, but also you're driving in the mountains. Um, you've got trucks, semi trucks that are passing you. And you're wanting to pass them on one-lane roads with no lights uh, and no no lighting and uh, that's a bit it's a bit uh, hectic in a way right but then there's also like this is a road you know you can go on and if you were to go on this road you don't because you might get kidnapped even if you're a local Excuse you, you're going to go through an area and nobody knows what's going on over there so there's a lot of that too so you need to know like which ways you can travel um, and just I think you have to always be kind of watch out for what's going on around you um, there was a lot of um, there were areas like you could end up with, driving for 10 hours for total poverty like, and when I say total poverty I mean like subsistence living really you know people like not a single th- they're gas stations actually those are the best stops to to get a bottle of water or something like that because it's like the most maintained thing but um, yeah you're not going to find a Starbucks for instance you know or anything that resembles coffee that you might want to have which is crazy like because they make so much coffee there.
0: I think that would be the coffee capital
1: <laughs> yeah it's not a great place to consume it you know, they they export a lot of it. I mean, they have actually good... Like in Medellin, they have like... Juan Valdez is their sort of Starbucks. It's pretty good. It's actually pretty good. So they do that pretty well there. But like when you're driving through the countryside, there's a big difference between Medellin or Bogota and the rest of the country. Like the rest of the country, it descends into pretty much abject poverty once you leave all the big cities. And you see things like... um, So I'm driving along the mountains. It's beautiful, right, by the way. You're driving along these mountains that are just jungle mountains, right? Amazing views. Roads are paved. And then there are dirt roads with, like, washed out things that you have to go around constantly. And um, when I was up in those mountains between Vija La and uh, the... There's a big river that intersects, and you got to go down to the river and then up into the next mountain over where Medellin is. But that first bit is really isolated. And you see, like, families on one motorcycle. Like, so dad's driving. He's got some, like, three-year-old kid in his lap, and mom's on the back, and maybe they have an infant and they're all riding on one motorcycle no helmet no shoes yeah
0: you can get pulled over for
1: that (laughs) exactly (laughs) i remember one time we were driving and it was like this kid passes me on a motorcycle and he's like i was laughing because he had a mask on covid no helmet no shoes on a motorcycle passing trucks in the middle of the night with no lights and a lot of times you see cars without their lights on there at night, <laughs> that happens a lot, motorcycles too, man, people just have a different risk tolerance, I guess, or maybe the light doesn't work or something, so it's a bit shocking for an American to be in the kind of situation where you see that just that's life, and you know it's like if you're from Colombia, they're like, eh hey, it's Colombia, you know <laughs> yeah you but know, you know, I think probably they've been through a lot, you know with all the stuff that we're talking about. So like when you're in a town you grew up and judges are being executed left and right, you probably don't think much about riding without a helmet. Like that's not your worst. <laughs> you might feel good about that or something. I don't know. It's, it's just sort of a different world really. And, um, I actually enjoyed it. It was such a, uh, uh, it's such a different experience too because I also i'm used to mexico you know and mexico is mexico you know it has its own set of things it's a big country um but the culture in colombia is a lot different and the food's a lot different way different um there's nothing and one thing about colombia colombia has not been good at exporting food have you ever seen a colombian restaurant in the united states
0: i don't think no yeah. No,
1: it's not a thing. It's like Peruvians; they went crazy with their mm-hmm. food, you know. And it's it's kind of interesting. Colombian food is a little bit, but they do a lot of with, with plantains. Um, so a lot of that kind of stuff. So.
0: so, 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 what do you think? You you come back from these places. You've been multiple times. You get back to Roanoke, and then you you know you, you witness the personality of society. <laughs> and yeah. the, you know, and and the disdain for the for the beautiful place that we live sometimes, and you know, mm. and and you, and you know, we have it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are constantly you know in disarray about things. Yeah, and and you know, after you come back from there, you know, not that that's not a beautiful place, but it's obviously got its issues. Yeah,
1: yeah uh-huh. I wouldn't want to run a business there. I, mean, what, I wouldn't want to run a business anywhere other than the United States. At right. least I mean, I
0: mean, I I what, what do you think do. about like standards mm. and you know? You know, guidelines to follow by to keep us safe and at peace, and, uh, you know, making sure that your uh, possessions are safe and things like mm-hmm. that. Well, um, because I, 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 the reason I ask, that, I ask that is because I've been, you know, I, I've been to Costa Rica, I've spent a lot of time in Mexico at certain times, things like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean,
1: I, I think you have to recognize that, um, You can't take for granted, I mean, for a lot of people, like for instance, a watch might be a big deal, where it's not as much here, things like that. Um, We've actually, in the United States, and I say this knock on wood, because things change over time and so forth, but in the 90s, you know, there was more concern about things being stolen, right? And I feel like, unfortunately, that's coming back to some degree. But we went for a long time where, you know, car theft, it was not huge. You know, I remember, if you had a nice radio in your car in the 90s, you had to watch out. That's true, I forgot.
0: Everybody forgot, yes.
1: Yeah, it's funny because we went through a period of just an abundance level that it it made crime not worth it in a way, I think. A lot of the crimes and she just didn't see a lot of that and um also i think though there's some weird things that are happening with that with regard to the fact that everything's on video now and you can kind of eat people it's way easier to get caught than it used to be for anything um things are more tracked or whatever you know um maybe harder to bootleg and you know like whatever you know like resell and all that stuff um not so in Colombia. like in Colombia uh my my friend was on a date and somebody was like i think stole his iphone and bet- he had his iphone sitting between him and the girl like and somebody was able to come up and take it it's like if you have an iphone in colombia you don't want to take it out in certain neighborhoods at all and then in other neighborhoods if you do take it out hold it with both hands because there's a huge market for for iPhones and things like that there and they will steal it because for them an iphone is like that's a lot of money um and I, whatever i you know in the u.s i tend to have thought that you couldn't really steal one because you not reuse it but there's ways that they opened it up or whatever and uh i know it's a big thing like if if you're there you just have to be careful about that kind of stuff um but the other thing too is like it's a very inexpensive in a lot of ways. Like the, the the best restaurants and stuff like that. The the one that <laughs> where's that there's that view. It's called Colossal in Medellin. It's got a beautiful view. It's like a great place. But it's expensive as heck by their standards. But for us, it would be like, you know, two people. You could spend two hundred bucks, but you have to. If you'd have a lot of things going on, it would be. Um, and for the view and all that stuff, but you could go also downtown in uh, poblado and have a steak dinner with wine and two people, and it comes out to like forty eight bucks with tip and everything. So, oh, they're not big on
0: tipping there, so it's kind of forty eight bucks. Wow. wow! Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it, I, I I search it every year and I think about the prospect of going there. And picking which city that we would go and i look and you can you can have your flight in a, a nice room downtown for 1400 bucks for seven days per person and i'm like yep that does not make sense
1: at all go to medellin stay in poblado i mean there are there are more edgy interesting places to stay but you'll be among a lot of gringos and a lot of familiarity and a lot of just easy and fairly safe if you stay in poblado you can venture out and do other things um one thing i recommend doing is to uh, take the metro tram because they they have trams there that are like their public transportation like a metro but you can go and take it all the way up to park rv which is in the mountains it's a kind of a beautiful little place the metro thing ends there i say metro but it's it's a tram and when you go over the mountaintop it's pretty crazy cuz you're you're going over neighborhoods and neighborhoods of really like poor stuff you look down and you're seeing houses that are just you can just tell they're kind of people decide to add on to it and that kind of thing uh not an uncommon sight in latin america that kind of stuff but the hill the mountains are so steep there like, the only way to get around is through a tram. Like, because it would be the roads, the way they wind and stuff, it, hours and hours of driving just to get up. And um, large, large parts of that town, like, if you go up to Castle Restaurant, you're just going to feel like you're almost vertical driving. Uh, and Ubers are really cheap there. So it's like, you know, it's like, a long, uh, I think Uber to the airport, which is like 45 miles away is like a comes out to like 18 US dollars yeah which is a different level Um, so if you're there Uber works so you can kind of get around town on Uber is a real easy way to do it Um, but going over you know the gondola and watching you know the whole view of the city it's it's really a beautiful thing because it's this big bowl and the city is there's a river at the bottom of it it goes along that but then all the way up the sides of the mountain are is the built-up parts of the city with lights and things and also like tall condos are really popular there so you see a lot of tall condos um kind of on the horizon Mm -hmm. of this big bowl, and then you come over the top what's kind of crazy is the 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 neighborhoods and things like that in starts getting really steep and then it starts getting into like little farms and stuff we call them campesinos uh farmers up there and then you go and you get to the point where you're going over the top and then you kind of come down into this little valley there and it's pine trees as far as you can see it's really beautiful and pristine and stuff it's like being in a uh, mountain type environment But it's not really too high or anything like that it's it's sort of like just pine tree level um and um in january i was there again and i took another road trip south this time and couldn't go to these volcanoes they have they have an active volcano it's covered in snow all the time and they have sort of red, yellow, green alerts, you know, and it was yellow, so you couldn't go, or it was restricted. Um, But uh, you have to take it seriously. They had a town completely wiped out in the 80s, I think it was, because the volcano erupted, and there wasn't much anybody could do, that kind of thing. But it's an active volcano, and uh, it's actually quite beautiful. But there's some, um, there's a park that's closer in that general area, drove down into that area and went too. And, um, again, it was nice. It was kind of like, it's a weird thing. Cause it's like, you're in mountains with pine trees, but also palm trees, palm trees and pine trees, which you don't see very often.
0: So, so what's the safety level? Let, you know, let, let's say I'm staying downtown just like Roanoke. And I want to go out and hit, you know, the, the peak on a trail and do a trail run. What's, what's the safety level? How do how do you feel about going? Yeah. So that? like, w- would you do that?
1: um park rv maybe uh there's some you could you could do some probably some trails out there
0: I mean, just like pick a random mountain
1: oh no 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 and even park rv uh we were going to walk on one level and it was suggested that we shouldn't walk because it might be dangerous so you know i don't know i don't know about that if you if you go to a place where there's a lot of trails that's away from a big city where a lot of tourists go um, uh, the 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 place I was at it's south and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere and it's a place where a lot of Colombians go to vacation so there it would be safe it's just um, but near the big cities I wouldn't trust anything really because you know there uh, you know the kind of stories i've heard is you know that it wasn't that long ago that they had some still pretty big violence and stuff so you want to stay away from unfamiliar areas you want to stay away from situations where you're can't get an uber <laughs> you know um you probably want to stick with most of the the beaten path tourist stuff i would think um, I wouldn't deviate from that much. Even in knowing some locals who don't want to do that. And the stories they have are, you know, not nice. Gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> so, But I would say Medellin's is a, a beautiful place to go. And there's plenty of like cool spots to check out if you're there. And it's safe to be in the Poblado. Where you'll see a lot of gringos there doing safe gringo stuff. Um, but it's like New Orleans level. Don't expect it's like... Yeah, I don't know. Um, some of the I, I, I didn't want to say some of the U.S. cities seem. I feel less like safe. you're
0: kind of down on New Orleans, which is kind of the way I felt when I left there. I think I was. I, I've been
1: there a few times, yeah. and I would say when I was there at Jazz Fest in like 2007, <laughs> 2008, I remember hearing gunshots during Jazz Fest yeah. like in the middle of the day, and I'm like,
0: yeah, I my my buddy and I came back from there. We were sick for a few days, both of us, after that. You mm-hmm. know, so it's, uh, it's kind of a tough place to be, and uh, very very unusual, not. Like any other city, I think I've ever been to.
1: Well, they had um, Katrina, and after well, Katrina, this was before that. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it probably wasn't you know perfect before that either. <laughs> sure, yeah. But you know, the sad thing is, is I left New York City a few years ago, and before I left, you know, New York City's not as safe as it was. You know, when I moved there in 2017, there wasn't a lot of crime going on. It was, I mean at all hours of the night, I'd be walking around the city, you know no matter what, I never felt unsafe at 4 in the morning walking down the street in New York City I don't know if, there's certain areas probably I still feel pretty okay with that now but you know, they you know, just had a mass shooting on the subway in Brooklyn it's like uh, and it's it's the kind of place that you have to be careful because it's Ultimately, um, the t- if the tide turns back to more violence and stuff like that in New York City, <laughs> I mean, when I was there in the 2000, I was there. I went there in 2000, and I felt like you had to be very careful. From my experience and my viewpoint of the 1990s and the 1980s, it wasn't uncommon to be robbed at knife point in New York City in the 90s and the 80s. That became pretty uncommon in the early two thousands, um, and so you know I, we have it here, really. I mean, that's the thing. Um, it's just that for the most part, I, I guess in a lot of ways, I understand the system here better. <laughs> so you know, getting involved in some kind of weird thing in another country, you just want to avoid all that. You don't want to get anywhere near any of that stuff. Um, So, um, but I would say, you know, from Columbus, I I would say Medellin. I recommend, I haven't been really to many other cities and hung out, so I can't really speak to those. Um, I know Bogota is the capital. I think it's a little bit more business oriented. I think Medellin has like a vibe to it. It's a little bit artsier, kind of a cool landscape. It's certainly a way cooler landscape because of the bowl thing and stuff like that. Um, and I think a lot of tourists go to Cartagena. I haven't been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I went to Peru as well. That was pretty cool. The Cusco thing. It's is like its own little place. You know, it's historical city, Incan capital. And you, way,
0: you went to the Rainbow Mountains, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So Cusco is ten thousand feet. Rainbow Mountains like seventeen thousand feet. And they have uh, another one, Lake Humente, which is a pretty cool lake way up in the mountains, surrounded by really cool snow-capped peaks. And uh, it's a bit of a hike. You get up to the lake, and it's cool pictures and stuff like that. That's kind of what that and Rainbow Mountain is you hike. Get some cool pictures and they're pretty cool i have to say um and then there's machu picchu which is insane and machu picchu is like it's a really cool spot uh, in the world if you kind of like think about you know what people might have been doing there when they created that city it was sort of like a little bit of a outpost and a little bit of a i think a getaway spot for The elite who lived in Cusco Incans and uh, the architecture is amazing there so and some of the things that they did with rocks and how they relate to stars and stuff and the alignment of the mountains and just parabolic looking brick rooms uh, like where each brick probably took uh, a decade or so of one person carving it to build like they had patience to build stuff like that in that society it's, it, it's just really interesting place to see and um it's got an interesting more recent history so I, I, I thought that was pretty cool what do you mean well i mean it was discovered you know by an uh here uh, i bursting which is like a i think he was a a senator from Connecticut, or something like that. Um, but he wrote the book about it. And ex- he basically brought it to the attention of the Western world, but the locals there knew about it, sort of. But nobody really saw it. And kind of, it, it really was like, it's kind of funny because the guy is basically Indiana Jones. <laughs> if you Obviously. look at the whole, like, just look at him the way he dressed, like what he was doing. Like, I think he was a professor at Yale or something like that. And then wrote the book. And uh, he did discover it. It's pretty cool. I mean, what's weird is, like, the Incan Empire just disappeared over the years after the Spanish. And places like Machu Picchu just became overgrown, completely lost cities. And from what I'm told is, like, you can see where they cleared off the top of the mountain, but apparently it goes way down the sides of the mountain. And there's like ruins that continue that they haven't fully looked at yet. It's just like bushes and stuff are still covering it. So it's like they don't understand the full scope of it yet. But there are several other cities. like And uh, there's this thing called the Incan Trail that you can hike and you see a lot of things but there's an actual road that connects Machu Picchu and Cusco and weirdly it's like on google maps it's like 45 miles away but it takes an entire day to get there because you can't go straight there there's not you can't go straight by train there first of all there's the roads don't really seem to be much like there's not much in the way of roads up there But there is a train that connects from Cusco to Machu Picchu. And you go through this valley, which is a very beautiful, crazy landscape valley. Uh, And you're going from, like, high desert, going from 10,000 feet and descending down the other side of the mountain toward the Amazon, and Machu Picchu is at 7,000 feet. So it's crazy, too, with Cusco. You're, if you go to Machu Picchu one day and then you go to Rainbow Mountain the next you're at 10,000 feet to start you go down to 7,000 feet to go to Machu Picchu and then the next day you go to Rainbow Mountain you're up at 17,000 feet so quite a big difference in elevation from one place so it kind of gives you a perspective of you know, that's the high part of the country but It's not like all a big flat area up there. It's like a lot of different stuff. And a lot yeah, the train has these weird things that it does because you can't you can't travel down the mountain in a train at a certain pitch. So it does these weird things where it will go down and then it'll go back and it'll go down. And then it'll go back. It's sort of like it's traveling sideways down the mountain. So you're in this train that's like, you you, you can really feel it because you're, you're stopping, turning directions, the track changes, and then you go down this thing. And you go down this thing. It's sort of like the train's walking its way down. And the funny thing is, is the train on the way back doesn't go all the way back to Cusco. It just doesn't get that far during the, during the day. So... Uh, the, the, the funny thing about that trip was I didn't expect that. I expected to end up at the Cusco train station. And I, instead, I'm at another town. And I was like, oh, I didn't plan this, but I did. a I booked it with, you just want to, by the way, you want to book with the easiest travel agency that puts you up with a van. You don't want to do anything by yourself there. It is too complicated to get around in that part of the world unless you just pay the $140 and say, take me this. It's not a lot of money, but it's like, you just book the thing to do the thing and they'll take you everywhere. And so it was funny because I, I didn't realize the train was going to end there. I'm like, everybody's getting off. Are you getting off? Okay, I guess we have to get off. And I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I didn't expect. And then, you know, there's a guy with my name on it with a, the with a, <laughs> holding up a plaque. He's like, Jeff. <laughs> I was like, And so they're rounding up all the people there to put them in a a van to get you back to Cusco because that's what the plan was. You know, if you buy the thing, they're going to get you back to Cusco. But uh, it was kind of foolproof in a way. But it was it was such an (laughs) in the moment. I was like, is this (laughs) is this getting screwed up? Well, uh, well, we
0: we've been looking at that every year, and every time I look at it, I'm like, this is too complicated. We're not going to be able to. To navigate and get to the mountains we want to climb. No, and it's sensibly. it's actually
1: easy because you just go on the Expedia or whatever website you have for the thing, and they hook you up with these people, and they get your number, and they text you. The only thing is, everything that they do there, they pick you up at five in the morning, because everything is a slog mm-hmm. of a you picked up at five in the morning. You're lucky you get back at eight at night. You yeah. might get back at 10 at night. Mm-hmm. So we did three days of three different things. By the third day I was, you know, the second day I was like, if they don't call tomorrow, <laughs> uh, I'd be almost okay with that. You know, like not doing the last day thing. Cause it was just so much. Uh, but they did. And by the time I actually, I was having that thought and then I fell asleep cause I was completely exhausted and got a pretty good night's sleep, and was ready to go the next day. But three days in a row, I have to say, at the elevation, it's a it's a challenge. It's a challenge to um, to get it all in. But I do recommend those three things because they're pretty cool. They're worth uh, they're worth doing. It's kind of a
0: a fun little awesome. thing with Cusco. Yeah. Cool. I'll keep that in my- mind. You like you um, like you really have covered Colombia and South America very well. You, you've done a lot of other things too. You recently went to, was it Norway? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was in Oslo. Um, Norway is a dream. It's a cool.
1: Yeah, go
0: there. <laughs> Oslo crazy great. we have all these folks from, you know, that have touched I think people on the podcast have touched just about every corner of the world. I don't think we've had anybody that's gone to Antarctica yet, but maybe we have. I don't know. Wow. Go ahead.
1: That would be pretty <laughs> yeah i've been to norway twice i've been to oslo only though and i i really do need to uh spend more time there um this last trip i was invited to go to bergen i have a friend that lives there and i just didn't i couldn't fit it in with what i was doing um and um but i do like oslo i like to just it's kind of got a cool vibe to it it's got a lot of um I mean, the restaurants, the fish there is really good. You know, It's uh, Scandinavian. It's got a really interesting culture in a way. Like, I remember the first time I went was five years ago. And people are very friendly there. So it's like the people I met from five years ago wanted to meet with again on the second time. So I ended up, I have like several friends that live there now. And um, from the two times I've been there, and they're kind of... Of the view, you know, just let me know if you're coming back. And a few of them have visited me in New York City. Uh, A friend of mine who lives there um, is a doctor. He actually lived in Kiev for a year, a few years ago. So Uh, they like to travel. Um, And it's a little bit of a different culture because they have so much wealth as a country. It's like a little bit hard to wrap our head around that like they have so much oil wealth and they're the only oil rich country that's actually not allowed to destroy their culture venezuela or create a situation where there's like a king in saudi arabia where it's kings and you know commoners they actually really did a good job of making it part of the wealth of the actual people who live in norway yeah and um it kind of is reflected in their culture, but on the other hand, the level of ambition of the average Norwegian is not that high, because they're kind of set for life. You know I think they, they, you don't struggle. Nobody in Norway who's a Norwegian citizen struggles, you know. And uh, but the people I know there, you know, I mean, everybody has their own reason for wanting to do something interesting, and so um, the people I I know there are mostly like. Involved in creating businesses and doing interesting things, and they're pretty well motivated. The average person is a little bit more of a part of your just living life, um, which is cool too for them, but their level of perspective on the world I think is somewhat limited because nobody else has it that easy. Good for them, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wouldn't it be all you know, yeah, so, so we all like it
0: so yeah. you know, traveling to every corner of the world and then you come back, uh. I have several questions about that. Do you, uh, obviously we, in the United States, in some ways feel as though it's so miserable. Like, do you think there's a perfect country? Like, is is there a better place? Is there a better place that we can go than here? Because I don't, I don't know that there is.
1: Yeah. I haven't found it yet. I've been to a lot of places. So, and, and the places I haven't been seem even less likely than ones that I have been. I've been to a lot of good places, been a lot of good places, and uh, legit, there's not one that I would decide I'd rather be there than the United States. Um, partly, I'm invested. I'm a lawyer in the United States, so it's like <laughs> that doesn't translate those <laughs> other countries. So you got to take that with a grain of salt, you know. Um, but um, all the Latin American countries are based on Spanish culture, which was good for the times and improving lifestyle relative to indigenous people and so forth in general and that's why it was accepted you know even the indigenous people in the countries went along with the Spanish culture and many of them became Catholic and all that stuff it was better than what they had but man Latin American culture or I say Latin Latin culture in the Americas is this like struggle to gain anything. You know, it's like, when they get good, they... Venezuela was at the peak of it, you know, in the 1990s. And look what happened. And it's like, there's something about the whole system that prevents it from continuing to rise. in the United States we have I think we have kind of a good balance between the British common law stuff, which we take for granted totally, but it's not worth I mean, the the fact that, you know, you own you buy a house and there's a good chance that nobody's gonna show up and say it was theirs and you have nothing to say for it. It's just not it just doesn't happen here. It's like There are cases and you know where things have occurred but most of it's done well whereas i think in in a lot of other countries they don't have that like you bought your house you, you improved it and then somebody comes and wipes you out and i think that happens over and over again and people just say what's the point right and uh i think that that distinguishes us in a lot of ways Um, and uh, we we also have this is the the real difference in my mind is the separation of powers kind of goes back to my class with Scalia but it's like the one thing that I think distinguishes us from a lot of the countries in Europe and even and especially from Latin America is like the fact that if the government tried to go after me personally, I'd at least be able to have a day in court. And there's a chance that I get a judge who disagrees with the government. There's maybe even a small chance, but it is a thing, and it gives uh, the executive a little bit of pause on what they might do to any given individual, because it might blow back in their face if the judge doesn't like it. And there isn't really a thing like that, I don't think. I don't think it's as powerful in other countries. I think the judges go along in other countries or they have their power somewhat limited or taken away from them. Like in France, um, in in all the European countries that ended the death penalty, I think they ended it because, and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't end it too, but like it was so clear that if you were charged, you were likely convicted and that's it. You know, it's like, people didn't really have confidence that you really had a fair chance to prove yourself innocent if you were. And so there was almost an acceptance of like, well, let's not allow them to at least kill you. So that was the sense I got. I mean, because like in France, I watched a criminal trial in Nice, France. And it's different than the United States. Like if you are convicted of a crime there, you show up in court, in the prison suit handcuffs, hands before you in a glass box. And that's how the trial is conducted. And we have a tradition where we don't allow that in general. We don't allow a, a defendant to be portrayed in handcuffs at the trial. Sure. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting difference there. And also, <clears throat> instead of having a jury... They have to do <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that was we, a good. We had a cat. Yeah. That was on. a cat. <clears throat> okay, go ahead. A cat miss out. <laughs> yeah, so it was like, it's interesting because they have these things, they do it differently. Instead of having a jury, they have judges who are weirdly like, um, they're not as independent as, as, I guess, U.S. judges who have a lifetime appointment. They're more like civil servant type on some level. And then they also have lay judges who are literally just citizens who go up there and or sit with the judges. And it's a different process completely altogether. And we have these nice little ways that can make it possible that you had a fair chance, uh if you're convicted or defendant or if you're not convicted, if you're accused. And it's a weird thing that I've thought is like I guess one of the thoughts I had was if I was ever being accused of something <laughs> in any place I've ever been, I've always felt that I'd have a better shot if I was accused in the United States. <laughs> so, you know, on the other hand, you know, we're, we're more likely to let somebody off who's been, who's actually guilty than in other countries, I think, to some degree. Um, I think a lot of times, it's a foregone conclusion if you get wrapped up in the wrong thing in all of these places which is part of the reason why as a, as a traveler one of the one of the things you gotta be careful about as an American U.S. citizen is, is that there's we have a sort we have a certain level of belligerence you know toward the government that I would never uh, I'd never do that in another country because the consequences are, are different <laughs> like we can we, can, we, have, we have a certain level of freedom. Sure. And actually is reflected in, in sort of, I think I saw it in Peru and the mask policy. In, in Peru, they required you to wear two masks. And I was sitting there thinking, why not three? But I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I'm just going to put the thing on. <laughs> but in, you know how it is in the U.S. It's like, well, look at this week's news. A federal judge just ended the mask mandate on planes. And maybe it gets appealed maybe it doesn't but it's going to be hard to reimplement re-implement that at this point unless we see like some real data or something that says it needs to be but like that doesn't happen that way in other countries as far as i know I, I don't know any country where one federal judge in a district court is able to strike down a national mask mandate and some people hate that about the united states and it's like it's why we're backwards in some ways i guess to some some points of view, especially in Europe. They don't like that that we have that kind of situation. We can't make progress as fast. Um, Things don't get done here as quickly. But there's kind of a beauty to that because it saves us from doing some things that are probably wrong, too. Sure.
0: Yeah, progress is a very uh, vague word. Hmm. You know, progress is what you want in this not necessarily progress. And progress. they say
1: Congress is the opposite of progress.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean I, I don't want to get too much into that, but I yeah. I, I do think we have it made in America. Mm-hmm. And we are doing every possible thing we can to mess it up. And I just you know, I just I hate that we head down a path that every day you see it. It's such such a, a head banging against one another. Yeah. And, 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 and when I was a kid, they didn't have, you, you didn't know. Like, you had no idea. Um, there, sorry, there's another cat. He's a, you, you had no idea as a child mm-hmm. that things were actually going on. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, with the internet and with technology, like it's almost like you are educating every single person every second of the day to pick a team. <laughs> Exactly. It's true. It's it so is, true. Yeah. You know, and 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 they already know. Like they've already picked it because they're, you know, well, my my friends are this, and my friends are that, and you know the, the the comparison to to countries who have already done that and it didn't work out. Exactly. And now we've decided that as a society that we should do that. It's it's kind of it's confusing for me. And it makes it tough because everybody now, even on a personal level, they would just want to fight each other mm-hmm. nonstop. Okay. it does
1: you can kind of feel like, i wish it would stop yeah there's a any anytime there's a new issue that comes out right there's that sort of everybody's waiting to see how it coalesces on which side's supposed to be on the side or that side and i think we have this uh it's a false dichotomy in the united states because you can't just slice it into two different types of people two parties it gets out uh, it gets um uh, the logic doesn't work on some level over time because th- what what we have is this weird thing where we do have two dominant parties and it's the only way to organize elections presidential type stuff democrat republican stuff and so we're always trying to fit the issues into those kinds of boxes and then what happens is weirdly, the parties move all over the place. Like the actual, like what it means to be a Democrat is different than what I grew up with. And same with Republican. It's completely changing over time, back and forth. And they're kind of wandering around, these parties, you know? But it's weird because it, it's like there's this, the artificial part of it is it has to be two. And it's because we have this sort of binary system set up. It's like has to do with the structure of all these elections and stuff. In Europe, they don't have it like that because they have this parliamentary system. Like, if you ever look at how many party, like, look at how many parties are in the Danish uh, legislature, it looks crazy, like a rainbow or something like that. You know, you have all different kinds of, you know, you've got the Greens, you've got the labor you've got the you know this that and the other i don't even know all of them but essentially they've all kind of coalesced around certain issues and they all have to actually in order to become a predominant they have to reach agreements with each other so there's that like flexibility in that and i think that um We have this weird thing where now things are being done where where we're not really trying to reach agreements. We're not trying to find the things we agree on, which is, I think that's where it's different than when, like, you and I were kids and stuff. There was more of a, you had more opportunities and more times when people would say, well, we all agree on this one thing, so let's just do this one thing. Now you have a lot of uh, people trying to, like, get a slim majority to get something accomplished while they can and hope, hope it sticks, I guess, because it may be hard to undo it, that kind of thing. And I think that's where we're at right now, where people are trying to go for that approach. I don't think it works in the long run because then you also have the problem of the new people come in because they reacted to the, they didn't like, and then they have to undo all the stuff that the one did before, which is all just totally ineffective, <laughs> just wasteful, and so I, I think that's that's unfortunate. But the basic structure of our country is still there that distinguishes us from others, which is that separation of powers. Which is actually that's that's the thing that can't you can't undo that. Like you can't, despite how much people might not like the fact that a judge could like reverse things. It's, it's kind of uh, it's really a big part of our system. And there isn't that in any other country that I've seen, like in the UK, they can look at like what happened in all the um, Commonwealth countries with regard to COVID policies, like Australia, New Zealand, they came down really hard it's because they didn't have any possibility of somebody going to court and challenging it except for the United States where I think we resisted going very hard on some of these things because the people in power knew if you did they'd get a judgment and it would backfire immediately so it's kind of that's it's a nice thing and I think that makes it a better environment in a lot of other respects like if you have a business and somebody comes to destroy your business, wrongfully, you have a way out. You have you have something you can do, and um, I, I think that goes a long way. So,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I feel like common sense has taken a beating. <laughs> oh, totally, <laughs> and yeah. uh, you
1: know, I think part of it's too a media problem. Our media was completely disrupted by the internet. You know, it used to be you'd have some sort of a viable business model in the media of like just being having some journalistic integrity or whatever and telling the truth and that people went to you for that sort of like if walter Cronkite says it you know it, it who am i to doubt that you know i mean like i don't have any reason to right but now like look at the people on the news today there's nobody on there who you're just sort of like well if they said it Unless I had some evidence to the contrary, I should probably just believe it. It's like, nope, <laughs> uh, because there's another side of somebody else trying to pick good things point. apart. You know, Very good like, point. we don't have that sort of credibility of the journalistic integrity. Used to, I mean, there was a business model. Actually, there's a funny book about that called "Trust Me Online," written by Ryan Holiday. You heard of that book? I think I have. Yes. So it's like back in the old days, the problem was you had. A similar situation with news media they would write newspaper they were just trying to sell newspapers so they would write headlines that said war broke out in this country but it was lies but they the lies sold more papers but eventually people (laughs) got tired of it and they got tired of it and the new york times actually changed the business model by saying hey if you subscribe to our paper we're going to actually give you like news with integrity and people bought it and they actually it worked. They built up a whole business, New York Times, for many years by delivering more credible news. But the problem is, is that the internet happened and nobody wants to pay for the New York Times or any of these things anymore. So you got this paywall problem and in order to compete with blogger x or whoever who's spinning things in a sensational way they also have to be sensational which means abandon the truth abandon any pretense to the stuff and it's actually interesting because it's a technological disruption of a business model which happens from time to time but um, the solution hopefully will be that we will coalesce around something that will make sense Like, cause like, I think maybe everybody at this point has to say it kind of sucks. Like it sucks that, you know, the information that's out there is so always reported in a biased way. And you can't really, it it takes a lot of work to try to suss out what might
0: be the truth. Nope. Nobody stands against it though. They all just pick the side that they want to hear and they just go with it. Like they're in a box and you cannot deviate from that box. And that's the problem. You cannot. You the wrong in, team. <laughs> Any step, you cannot take one step in the other direction because you know it's going to weaken whatever your stance is. And uh, I don't know. I, that's I, not a good way. That's where common sense uh, is destroyed. And, and, and the only reason I bring this up is because you've had experiences in other countries, and I'm curious as to how it compares, you know, to traveling around and being, um, you know, in, in their environment versus ours. So I just, you know, yeah. that would bring it up. Not just for the point of bringing it up. Not that you don't hear it. Every second of the day, I worry to, that we have, have too many TV lawyers.
1: I, I worry that we have too many, like in the media. Like there's lawyers, who sure, the, the media, yeah. A lot and of them the thing are. is, is like the lawyering works well. And they, they taught us how to portray a set of facts, Salesman, are, salesmanship. It's selling the case, right? You know. And the thing is that it makes sense to do that in the context, like we were talking before, like how do judges decide cases? Well, the one thing that judges don't do. The one thing that judges never do is say, well, I like the way this feels, this one team here. The other one can just go outside the courtroom and, and, and screw off. I'm not going to listen to that one. I'm just going to listen to this one. You know? And then they do all the lawyer things. And believe me, they're going to win every time because you don't have any reason to doubt them. And everything is portrayed using every linguistic technique that they taught us in law school to minimize the negative and accentuate the positive for our own client and it's like if that's all you're gonna hear unless you're gonna dissect everything and be skeptical as heck which is not gonna happen for most people you're gonna come to the conclusion that they want you to reach because they had a case and they brought it. They decided to live. In In the case where you have both sides doing that, the judge sits there and listens to the lawyers on both sides who do the lawyer thing. But what now we have is we have on you know one news station, the lawyers for that station are doing the lawyer thing and the other station have the lawyers doing the other thing and they're literally talking to different people. They've segregated the market into... I listen to this one and I listen to this one. So nobody's really looking at it from understanding like the opposite point of view. And it's gotten to the point where things come up and the, if the whole story isn't useful for the narrative of the station, they just don't talk about it. They don't negative it. They don't do anything. They just ignore it. So we have a whole bunch of people in different contexts who don't know the basic facts of what's going on with the other side. So like whew, totally people uh, who have uh differing points of view talking past each other, it's not really accomplishing much. So it's, um, it's a weird thing about what's happening. And I don't know if that's happening in other countries. Cause to be honest with you, the one thing is, is that's the hard part to crack into if you're traveling. Right. I mean, It's really hard to crack into like what the culture is. And in fact, it's really hard to understand the culture, even if you have an insight into it. Like I go to Europe and I talk to people and I do like to ask them questions about it. But just as it's almost impossible for them to understand our politics and our culture, it's very difficult for them, for us to understand theirs as well because we don't know their basic system we don't we miss a lot of things that's true we get the sort of and if they do it it's it's going to be a very you know they kind of have their point of view and they're going to put that across and you're going to get one person's point of view but it's really tough to understand the full meaning of what something is in a different culture and it's the same there it's funny too because i think a lot of europeans think they understand the u.s Um, because they get it presented to them in a certain way based on the media that they see. And um, I find it really interesting because when you have a real conversation with a European, like, for instance, a German, I remember talking about, I was in Germany talking about this, you know, um, on the concept of, like, immigrants. It's a big issue in Germany because they have a lot of immigrants, like Turkish, especially Turkish immigrants. And it's a big Cultural issue that's in there, just in the, it's a big part for Germany right now. And um, I said, Well, what about undocumented immigrants? No, (laughs) not in Germany. Like, they don't have anything that's undocumented in Germany. And they found it completely astounding the idea that a country would allow having anybody who's undocumented at all. And it's like, here we have a big issue with, that's at least put on the politics side, it's a big issue. And well, the Germans would have been seen largely sympathetic with one side once you told them that there's undocumented they freaked out <laughs> they don't know the full picture of what's going on uh and I find that really interesting because there's so many things like that where you, like you in order to understand like where they're coming from, you almost have to live there and talk to a few different sides of it and really kind of maybe understand how the history evolved. And um, it it takes a lot of work and time to be able to really have a clue as to what's going on in a given country. But um, I think it's real easy for... It's kind of crazy, too, because it's like knowing all that, knowing that it takes that much work to actually understand what's going on in a particular place, we kind of act like we all kind of know. In, in a lot of ways, or at least people pundits and stuff like that talk about it and I'm just like very skeptical what I hear a lot of times when people say, "Oh, this is what's going on. We hear this war in Ukraine and all this stuff, and it's like that's a complicated situation. There's a lot going on there. I don't know. I need to know more
0: no, but the the average person I've heard it a million times will say, "I'm very informed, and that just kind of means that you watch the news,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: I mean, I mean if you i mean doesn't really in in this day take a a genius to figure out you know one side or the other so and we also have that problem
1: where we don't have a lot of people in the united states who travel outside the u.s US and really get a perspective so i mean it's partly a it's like one of those things where it's like we're blessed by having a lot of different stuff here you could, pro- and there's a lot of traveling in the United States. I haven't done that; friends have done, and I see the picture. And I'm like, "Wow, that's really cool." There's plenty to see that I haven't seen here, so it's it's really interesting. Um, you almost don't need to go abroad that much, and I think that kind of reflects the whole thing. You know, we we have a culture that sort of is very self centered in a way, um, and we have a country that does a lot abroad. <laughs> Which is a weird mix because the people don't really know what's going on here Yeah, about what's going on. But
0: yeah. All right. So you and I are pushing two and a half hours. Dang. I don't think you and I will ever have an end point to our conversation. I think we pretty much, if we didn't have to go to sleep, we could kind of stay for another, I I think we could go a whole shift. I think (laughs) an eight hour, maybe even a 12 hour. You know, but for the sake of listeners, I guess we should probably kind of head it towards the finish line. I, yep. um This has been a very interesting and definitely unique conversation. We, you know, I, I, and 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 I knew it when I picked you, and I <laughs> no, no nobody else had any influence or like like no nobody else knew that I even um, had you in my sights about sitting down and having a conversation. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of a, I feel like this is kind of a win.
1: Oh, yeah, because I actually you know, really enjoyed it
0: you know, your yeah. your um, your information is not the standard that we get it's totally different and i you know maybe the podcast will um, it, it, it it'll definitely take a different turn based on you know your your knowledge of your line of work and and I don't know just really cool so uh you know before we get off, why'd you pick roanoke
1: um well, I have two kids here. And their mom's from Roanoke. So when I was living in D.C., we met and you know dated for a while. And ultimately, it's often best to have kids around their whole family. Mine's out in San Diego and stuff, so it didn't really make sense to do anything with that. So ultimately, it made a lot of sense to have the kids grow up here. And, I, you know, I was doing the thing in D.C. and New York. And um, I was doing things that you just can't do here. When i was there and flying in and out seeing my kids and i never really got to meet anybody like you you know because i was here i would just see my kids and i would get get back to what i was doing coming and going and uh, the yeah the, the you know silver lining of the pandemic is sort of it kind of got everybody moved toward a work from home situation i was like if i'm working from home there's no need for me to be anywhere near particular particular place, and uh, I really wanted to be closer to my kids, and it's just um, very fortunate that things worked out in terms of timing, um, because there's just a window at this point. You know, they're 11 and 13, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm really happy about that having become a possibility, Um, and at this point where the world is, you know. There's nothing that uh, makes it you know it, it, it it's a it's a perfect place to to be really
0: awesome yeah glad you said that your your kids eat a lot of good food i noticed that <laughs> yeah. yeah they get a lot of dinners that's true yeah. <laughs> good for you man it's been a pleasure same did you Thank uh you. you have anything you want to say before we headed out
1: well not really i think we covered a lot of ground and you know it's good to get to know you a little bit better greg and you yeah. know and uh and uh this is a really cool setup that you have. I, I'm really uh it was I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised, you know, it's one of those things where you mentioned it and I was like, Oh, okay, I'll check it out and you've really made a a complete technical setup of the whole thing and do it very professionally. So I appreciate that.
0: Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. You know, as I've been podcasting uh am apprehensive to just ask you know and, and you and I don't even know each other but I was, I'm was i apprehensive to ask someone like you want to come on my podcast because I think you know a lot of people do that hey man you want to call my podcast and, and, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I at least think you know there's enough effort and quality into this that you know we've got a lot of folks who follow it that you know they appreciate a good bit of information like you just gave and um, yeah it's great all right all right yeah. um Let's just sign this thing off. Right. Uh, we'll we'll talk again. I'll see you soon. We'll run into each other probably more than we ever have now that we're doing it. You might even need to get your bicycle back out and uh, <laughs> and uh, we, and we'll do it that way. But you know, let's do it. So you, I, I, you acted like you had listened to a podcast in the past. I figure that you did not. So do you know what we say at the end? And that'll let you know. Mm-mm. See you tomorrow. All right. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. All right. Thank you, Jeff.